Uh, before I was gone, we were in a series dealing with the issue of sexual morality, and we started addressing that topic because we came to chapter four of First Thessalonians. We're not going to study that passage this morning, but I do want to start by reading it for us one more time. If you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn there. First Thessalonians chapter four. I'm going to read verses one through eight. We're going to come back to this a little bit, maybe two weeks, and then we'll pause for those holiday messages dealing with the coming of Christ. First Thessalonians chapter four, verses one through eight. This is the word of our Lord. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual morality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. About a month ago, there was a news outlet that put on an event at the White House, and the event was called a presidential forum with Joe Biden. According to the company that put on this event, this was going to be a time for President Biden to engage in, quote, conversation with six change makers on issues animating young people ahead of the midterm elections, which have now passed. One of the guests at that event was a man whom we're, we're told is a social media star. This man claims, in fact, to be a girl, not just a woman. He says he's a girl. He was previously invited to speak at the Forbes Women's Summit, and now he was invited to talk to President Biden on the issue of the rights of transsexuals. The segment began with the president and the moderator, and the moderator talked about current laws and possible future laws which would prevent, in some states, genital mutilation on minors. It would prevent men from competing in women's sports and prevent men from accessing women's restrooms. When asked about those kinds of laws, President Biden said, quote, I don't think any state or any body should have the right to do that as a moral question and as a legal question. Again, he's speaking of the desire to prevent this. In speaking about laws intending to protect a child's privacy and to protect children from making life-altering decisions, President Biden went on to say, it's outrageous and I think it's immoral. The trans part's not immoral. What they're trying to do to trans persons is immoral. If you remember a few weeks back in looking at 1 Thessalonians, I told you that 
Sexual immorality refers to anything that deviates from the design of God for sexuality. And now we have a president making a statement that those who attempt to stop the transsexualization of our nation and of our children, he says that's immoral. And I couldn't think of a more fitting response in the words of Isaiah in chapter five, verse 20, when he said to the nation, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. How did our culture get to this point? You're only two chapters in to the Bible to realize that God made mankind in his image. He made male and female. And he designed that a boy would grow into a man. Jesus repeated the statement, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother. A boy grows into a man. He separates from his parents and he is joined to a woman in marriage. 200 years ago, this would have been universally affirmed in every public sphere And now it's almost universally denied by the media and even major corporations. Last month, there was a teenage girl in Vermont. She spoke out because she was uncomfortable that they would allow a teenage boy to be in the girl's locker room as she changed. Because she spoke up, quote, she was found guilty of harassment and bullying, end quote, She was ordered to, quote, take part in a restorative justice circle with the equity coordinator. She had to submit a reflective essay, and she served an out-of-school suspension. And it wasn't until the girl obtained legal defense and she sued the co-principals and the district officials that the superintendent rescinded their disciplinary action. How did we get here? This past week, the city of San Francisco approved a new program called GIFT, just in time for the holidays. GIFT stands for Guaranteed Income for Trans Persons. They're offering trans people $1,200 every month for a year and a half. It's open to the first 55 applicants who make $600 or less each month. The online application for assistance has over 15 different choices for your personal pronouns and over 90 options for gender identity. How did we get here? Back in 2015, the Obergefell case came before the Supreme Court And they at the time ruled that marriage did not have to be between a man and a woman. They also ruled that no state could ban the recognition of such a homosexual union. This past week, the Senate passed what they called the Respect for Marriage Act. And the aim is to codify that Supreme Court decision into constitutional Law. If that became the law, it opens the doors for activists to sue religious groups and religious individuals because they're not, they, they will not go against their beliefs. In response to that Senate decision, Al Mohler, who's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, said those who voted in favor of the bill, quote, redefined marriage and undermined civilization, endangering religious liberty. 
How did our nation come to this point? How did we get to the point where USA Today could put a man on their list of women of the year? How did we get to a point where the White House could select open homosexuals and open transsexuals as a member of the staff and we're all supposed to pretend everything is as they say? How did we get to the point where high-profile businesses and individuals could lose access to social media accounts simply for stating biological realities? There's an answer to that question politically and historically, but this morning I want to give you the theological answer. What is it that has led us to this place? I'm not asking the question from an individual perspective. That's a separate question. I'm not asking how does a person get to the point where they decide to pursue a certain kind of lifestyle. I'm asking the question at a societal level. How did we get to a place where we will openly, as a culture, promote that which dishonors God and so clearly goes against his design and even biological realities? To answer the question, I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter two, verse one, the apostle Paul wanted the people of God to understand the trajectory of the culture. And he wanted us to understand where it would end. It ends in the same place it ended for Israel. It ends in wrath and in judgment. But in recognizing where this culture is headed before a holy God, we dare not assume that we're above it. Look with me at Romans chapter two, verse one. Here's an important reminder that needs to adjust how we think about the culture and the things that we're gonna see. Romans chapter two, verse one, Paul says, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. In chapter one, he describes a fallen society, then he says, you have no excuse, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? So before we start looking at how we got here, we need to remember this warning. None of us is exempt from the judgment of God. All of us can look out at the sin of the world and need to realize that there is sin in our own hearts and where we have rebelled against God's design and where we have given in to sin, there is a judgment meant for us. We're grateful that the judgment eternally is taken for us in Christ. But that's where we were headed. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. We were children of wrath. So as we think and talk about the downfall of society, this is not intended to be an arrogant thing. This is supposed to be humbling. What we're gonna do right now is work backwards through the second half of Romans 1. It's not the normal way you're supposed to do Bible study, but I think it's gonna help us start from where we are now and then walk back up this staircase that we have fallen down. And in doing that, we'll we'll be able to see how it is that we got here. Where are we right now as a nation? As a culture, we're at the end of Romans 1. 
And that means we are in a state of a deranged mind. A deranged mind. If you want to keep a list of how we got here, the bottom of the staircase is that. A deranged mind. We are and will continue to see more things in our culture that aren't even going to make sense logically. There are the things I already mentioned. There are way, way more examples. Things being taught to kids at the youngest age that pervert his design. We see things and we ask, it doesn't even make sense. There's no logic, but in the eyes of the culture, it doesn't have to. This is a culture running after its sin without any thought to the implications or to human reason. That's what it means to have a deranged mind. It doesn't function anymore. It no longer makes sense. And the transsexual revolution is right in there with that kind of thinking. Look with me at verse 28. Romans chapter one, verse 28. It says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of evil, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. So we see immorality, we see injustice, we see the abandonment of law and order, and our age says that's a good thing. This is the spirit of our age. We may not see it as pronounced in our own homes or in our own cities, but this is the culture in which we live. God has given the culture over to a non-functioning mind, and he did so as an expression of his judgment. You see that in verse uh, 28. It says, God gave them up to a debased mind. If the people want to continue in their sin, God removes his sustaining grace that would hold his back, and the result is chaos. How did we get there? What was happening before this level of, uh, of, of, of a deranged mind? What was happening to get us to that point? How did we get to a place where God would just give a culture over to foolishness and rampant evil? Well, before we got to the level of a deranged mind, we were at the level of an unnatural desire. That's the previous level. You go up the staircase. Before a deranged mind, we had an unnatural desire. It makes sense to think that if a culture continues to press itself toward that which is unnatural, the result is going to be a culture that ditches logic altogether. If you keep breaking the rules, what's the point of having any rules? If we had no desire to stay within God's design, what's the point of having any design? So before the deranged mind, there was an unnatural desire. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 26. We're just going one paragraph up. Romans 1, 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. 
So before he gives them up to the the debased mind, he gives them up to dishonorable passions. He continues, for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Verse 27, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So before we had the illogical transsexual revolution, we had a homosexual revolution. That's what verses 26 and 27 describe. The culture was consumed with unnatural desires and they announced to the rest of us that that's okay. That's progress, they said. God tells us that it's unnatural. He tells us that it's shameful. He tells us that it's dangerous. They received in themselves the due penalty and that would include diseases, The culture, however, says, no, no, this is to be celebrated. So they flaunted their pride flags in rebellion to the design of God. How did we get there? Again, verse 26 repeats that phrase. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. You get what you want. That was a form of judgment. God allowed the culture to go its own way. What led to that? Well, before the deranged mind, there was an unnatural desire, and before the unnatural desire, there was an illicit sexuality. That's one step before the illicit sexuality. To use sociological terms, before there was a transsexual revolution, there was a homosexual revolution, and before there could be a homosexual revolution, there was a sexual revolution. About 70 years ago, at least in this nation, people understood God's design for sexuality and marriage. The culture affirmed that. Things that men did outside of their marriage were considered scandalous. But then came the sexual revolution and those who stood up for the design of God in marriage were told that's unloving. That's old fashioned. Why can't you just let people love whomever they love? Why can't we just leave people alone in the privacy of their bedrooms? Culture about 70 years ago began to say even more loudly that the biblical design for sexuality was oppressive and old-fashioned. The playboy mentality was beginning to flourish. You had college students all around the nation advocating for free sex including access to abortion and other birth control methods to enable their behavior. That was a major transition in our culture, in our nation. The biblical foundations of the family were beginning to crumble under the weight of free love, which was the 60s. Instead of a desire to honor God and to recognize the shame of illicit relationships, our culture openly embraced its own personal pleasure. Look at that, If back up just one paragraph in Romans chapter one, verse 24. It says, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. So before he gave them up to a debased mind, he gave them up to dishonorable passions, and before that he gives them up to the lusts in their hearts. He gives them up over to impurity. The verse 24 continues, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. 
because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So once a culture removes the foundation of God's design, there is nothing to stop it. God himself removes the sustaining grace that was holding it back. And illicit sexuality leads to unnatural desire, and the unnatural desire leads to a deranged mind. But we can still go back one more step. The sexual revolution of this country was not the beginning of our decline. Illicit sexuality was not the starting point of our fall. We have to go back one more step. Before a deranged mind, there was an unnatural desire. Before the unnatural desire, there was an illicit sexuality. But before the illicit sexuality, there was something else. There was an ungrateful heart. An ungrateful heart. Look at verse 21 with me. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The starting place for the downfall of the Roman society and our own society was inadequate worship. Human reason was elevated above divine revelation. The arts and the sciences went from exalting the creator to praising the creation. We had a culture that was beginning to flourish. They saw God's blessings. They saw the evidence of his power and his goodness. If you back up a little bit, verse 18 and 19 talk about the common grace. It's, they can see God's power. They can see his, his, his blessing upon us, but the nation rejected him. Again, Paul says, we did not honor him and we did not give thanks. This all began with an ungrateful heart. Maybe you didn't expect a connection today between sexual morality and thanksgiving, but there it is. We're all going to celebrate, I imagine, thanksgiving this week. It's a reminder of how vital this is, how important it is. Giving thanks to God is not an option. It's a vital part of the Christian life. It's the foundation of what it means to honor God. I hope we, our family enjoys our Thanksgiving. I hope you all enjoy your Thanksgiving. We have to remember, though, it's not just about celebrating a day off work or a day off school or even a good meal with friends and family. Thanksgiving is about giving God the proper honor which he is due. And based on what Romans 1 tells us, we see that a heart that is discontent and ungrateful is on its way to ruin. And the same is true for a society. The downfall began and begins with the lack of thanksgiving. Proper thanksgiving is the prevention of a culture and a life that falls away from God. 
Take that to heart. Proper thanksgiving is the prevention of a culture and a life that falls away from God. And it's interesting that Romans 1 is not the only passage to make a connection between giving thanks and pursuing holiness. In just a moment, I'll show you one more passage before we wrap up our time together. Even if you're not personally at the final step of Romans 1, all of us have to recognize that our hearts are constantly wanting to move in that direction. God has set a design for sexuality, for holiness, and lust pulls at us. That's what it is to be in a sinful world. That's what it is to live, like Paul said, in a body of flesh. James said sin comes in because there's a temptation, there's a desire. It attracts the desires that are in our sinful hearts. We see the allures and the lies of the world and lust wants to feed. And that produces in us a certain type of angst. There's a battle. In 2 Peter chapter 2, it says that Lot, while he lived in Sodom and Gomorrah, he saw all the immorality. It says he was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. It says that righteous man lived among them day after day, and he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Part of the torment would be the dishonoring of God's principles and God's truth. Part of the torment could even have been the temptation. God has given all of us a very powerful and important weapon for this battle against the immorality of our time, and that weapon is thanksgiving. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. The second half of the book is aimed at practical things. The first half of Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 is the doctrinal truth. We are in Christ. We have all these blessings in Christ. And then beginning in chapter 4, Paul begins to describe how we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Chapter 4, the heading in my Bible says the new life, and that's what the end of the chapter is, the second half of chapter 4. Paul says instead of lying, we need to be speaking the truth. Instead of unrestrained anger, we need to be pursuing peace. Instead of stealing, we need to be generous. Instead of corrupting speech, we need to build up. And at the end of chapter four, he says, instead of bitterness, there needs to be kindness and forgiveness, just like Christ has forgiven us. And then we come to chapter five. And notice what Paul says, Ephesians 5.1, he says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Behind that statement is the same idea he told the Thessalonians. We're here to please God. Christ perfectly pleased God. We're to walk in in, in obedience and, and having Christ as our example. We don't walk according to the world anymore. We walk in obedience to Christ. And part of a life that honors him is a life of sexual purity. So look at verse three. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. 
and uses the word saints there to remind us that we've been called to be holy. The saints are the holy ones. It's a reminder there that we're called to be pure and set apart from the world. There is no place among the people of God for sexual immorality. Our lives are not our own. We've been redeemed. We've been purchased. We belong to Christ. And the fact that Paul gives a command reminds us that this is not automatic. This is a battle. We need to fight for purity. And in verse 4, Paul extends that fight even to the level of our language. Verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. He's not talking about making fun of someone else, although that would be not edifying. He's speaking of the content of sexual morality. There's no place for that. Those are, he says, out of place. But instead, verse 4 ends, instead let there be thanksgiving. We can be impure with our bodies and we can be impure with our words. Paul says there's no place for that among the people of God. Instead of dirty lives and instead of dirty jokes, Paul says, what are we supposed to have? Thanksgiving. He doesn't contrast impurity or immorality with purity or holiness. He says, instead, let there be thanksgiving. Why say thanksgiving? Why contrast sexual immorality with thanksgiving? That contrast helps us learn about what's really behind the heart of sexual sin. Whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're young, whether you're old, all of us face sexual temptation, we will face illicit sexual desire, and the root of that desire is a lack of contentment and a lack of gratitude. Sexual sin is to say to God, God, what you have given me right now is not enough. I want more. I want more. If you back up a verse to back to verse three, he says, there should be no sexual morality or impurity or covetousness. I want more. Remember the story Nathan told David when he approached him about his sin? The rich man has all these sheep. A friend comes over and rather than slaughter his own lamb, he steals the lamb of another man and serves him that. And David was infuriated because he understood that that rich man was marked by greed, but it wasn't until Nathan confronted him that he realized that was him. Nathan said, you are that man. That's you. He even told David later, if I have not given you, on behalf of God, if I have not given you enough, you could have asked me for more and I would have given it to you. That's you and that's me. Every time we're pulled into sexual sin, whether it's in our mind or in our speech or in our conduct, we're saying to God, I want more. You've set a line for me today, right now, but I want more. I don't live for you right now. I live for myself. And when we live for something other than God, the word for that is idolatry. So notice what Paul says in verse five. 
For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. If sexual sin takes over your life, if sexual sin is the dominating feature of your life, you are not headed for the kingdom of God. Similar to what Paul said in Romans 1, you are headed to judgment. But that is not how it needs to stay. At the beginning of the message, I quoted to you from Isaiah chapter 5. He looked out at the nation and said, you've completely flipped around God's word. You call darkness light. You call bitter sweet. You have abandoned your God. But just a few chapters later, listen to what Isaiah says in chapter nine. Isaiah nine, verse two. He says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Isaiah understood what Paul understood and what we need to understand that our God is a savior. Despite how far any people or any culture might be from him in darkness, God sends his light. He sends the light of his truth and he has sent us the light of Jesus Christ. Many of you here have seen the light, you've accepted the forgiveness for your sin, you've repented of your sin. That has been the heart of God since the beginning to redeem and to restore. Judgment is real, but so is God's mercy. In the days of the Apostle Paul, one of the worst cities was Corinth. The entire Roman Empire knew you go to, it became a verb. You would Corinthianize a young man when he came of age, send him to Corinth. Yet even there, even in the worst of cities, even in the darkest of cities, the light of the gospel had taken root. And people there came to confess their sin and to trust in the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ and to believe that he had been raised from the dead. So listen to what Paul says to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse nine. He asks them, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Then he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He knew there were people in the Corinthian church still battling, still battling against the idolatry and the prostitution of that age. And he told them that was your old life. Now you walk with Christ, you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified. 
And what a beautiful reminder that is that no one is beyond the saving grace of Jesus Christ if they will repent of their sin and if they will call out for mercy. This is the message of our church, that if you've never done that, that you do that today. That you recognize, I have fallen away from God's standard, whether that's one step or every step. If you call out to him for forgiveness, he will wash you. He will sanctify you. He will declare you righteous before him, and he will give you his Holy Spirit to help you walk in obedience and in joy. And part of the fruit of that work will be no longer a heart marked by discontentment or bitterness, but a heart marked by thanksgiving. Thanksgiving keeps you back from the sin and the foolishness of this world. And Thanksgiving helps you fight against all the false promises that this world offers us. Let's not underestimate the power and the privilege of giving thanks to our almighty God. If you have your notes page, there's usually a spot at the bottom to write some some notes. If you'd like additional notes, we're going to take a moment now for personal reflection. Jot something down. I encourage you that stood out to you, something maybe you want to share with someone this week. It'll just be a few moments while we respond personally. You can pray with someone, a friend or family member who's near you. We'll have a short time to respond. I'll close with a final prayer, and then we'll dismiss with the closing song. Let's respond. Let's give God the thanks and the honor he deserves. Let's commit ourselves to a heart of gratitude and a heart of contentment. Let's respond. Heavenly Father, we live in a culture like we just read, marked by discontentment, clamoring for more. And that affects us. We look around and we find so many reasons to complain so many things in our life that aren't the way we'd prefer them to be. And yet your command is that we give thanks always. We pray you give us humble hearts as we think about our children, as we think about our spouses. Fill our hearts with gratitude for your many blessings. Yes, we live in a fallen world. Yes, we are sinners seeking to love other sinners. We pray you give us thanksgiving in our hearts. Thank you for the sweet joys of family, of a husband or a spouse, for the joys of brothers and sisters in the Lord. Help us as we enjoy each meal, each new day, to begin by giving thanks, Father. Help us fight against that attitude of complaining or whining, Help us push back against the lies of this world that tell us if you only had this, you would be happy. This would make your life better. Remind us, Lord, that everything we have, everything we need for joy, for life, you've already given to us. And every new gift that we receive, whether that's in marriage or in the common grace of this life, we know those are just more blessings from your good hand. Those are foretastes of a future eternal joy that will be for all those who belong to you. Remind us, Lord, of the end. This world is headed to judgment and wrath, and that's where we should be going as well. 
but you've saved us in Christ and we will be in a new heavens and a new earth and righteousness will dwell forever and sin will be eradicated and we will have perfect joy for all eternity. Fill us with this confidence, fill us with this joy and give us thanksgiving, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.